0: You're listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. belichick once said good players can't overcome bad coaching it's impossible it's a great quote and i agree 100 percent but just how much of a difference can a good coach make and then i guess you have to ask what exactly is good coaching in the first place it's a big and important question, and it ties directly into the Crush Talent series that we aired a few years back. And that's exactly what we're gonna look at today. Just how influential is a coach? And what kind of a difference can a coach make on player and team performance? So I just got back from the Middle East. It was my first time there. And I was lecturing to the top coaches from about 13 different sports. I loved it. It was right in my wheelhouse. These were all great sport coaches. They knew the technical and tactical aspects of their sport inside and out. But what I discovered right away is what I've seen all over the world working with Major League Baseball and the Canadian Olympic Committee and other organizations. At every level of sport, Coaches are limited in their knowledge, and that's to be expected. It's perfectly fine. A coach can't know everything. It's impossible. So my approach for these five days with these top coaches was, how can I help them get better at coaching? My answer, share with them what I know and get them thinking maybe about things they haven't been thinking about, just like we do on this show with you. If you look at the very best coaches, they know what they know very well. They know they have strengths and they also know they have areas of potential. It's a situation that's very similar to say medicine. You have the all knowing family doctor who for the most part is the front line. They can handle a lot of different things, but they also know when they need help. So they refer you to a specialist who has a very focused expertise in a certain area. It's actually a great team approach. In football, you have your head coach, and we all know who the really good ones are. Then you have your quarterback coach, your offensive and defensive coaches. You have your special teams coaches, wide receiver coaches, running back coaches, strength coaches, 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 and more coaches. And they all have their areas of expertise, which makes them incredibly valuable. It's similar in almost every sport. Great head coaches surround themselves with other great coaches, Who have very specific and valuable knowledge. It's team building. And the great coaches I've been around, well, they're a lot like our athletes. They have their strengths. The great coaches ride those strengths just like we tell all of our athletes. If you are trying to be the best at something, be the best at your strength and build everything around that. But the great coaches and leaders also clearly understand something else their weaknesses and this is where they build a team around them in order to be strong on all fronts. Just like we tell our athletes, nobody does it alone. But it's also very important to note that the coaching situation is very different at the different levels of sport. At grassroots, your intentions and your purpose are very different than in collegiate or professional sport. In developmental sport, your approach to coaching is going to be very different than coaching an Olympic team to the podium or a gold medal. All of these levels have different priorities, and it's important to understand this. Just as it's important to understand how coaches really work, knowingly or unknowingly. There's something called coaching bias, and it's happening everywhere all of the time, whether you know it or not. A coach's experience as an athlete and as a coach can have a significant effect on how that coach operates. That's coaching bias. And it's not that it's a bad thing, but it is real. If you remember one of the main takeaways from our crush series on talent and talent ID, the fact that there's no real consensus between coaches on what exactly talent actually is. Yet building, developing, and training for talent is the main goal of everyone involved in sport. It gets even more interesting when you introduce the concept of coaching bias. How coaches select players, coach players, and organize their team's development and progress may be greatly influenced or biased by that coach's personal experience and by his or her strengths and weaknesses. Again, it's not necessarily bad, but it can be limiting if you're not aware of it, both as a coach and for sure as an athlete who's trying to navigate their way through the crazy world of sport. So much of an athlete's future and potential rides on their relationship with their coaches. So let's have a deeper look at the science behind coaching bias with the specialists who actually study this fascinating sporting phenomenon. Here's Dr. Alex Roberts from La Trobe University in Australia whose work on coaching is incredibly important to the very fabric of sport. In her research, Dr. Roberts looks at coaching style, coaching decision-making, and coaching tendencies in attempt to better understand the influence that coaching has on sport athlete development, and competitive outcomes. Her work has shed some very interesting findings that everyone in sports should be aware of. Here's Dr. Alex Roberts.
1: The thing I found really interesting was the idea that different coaches within the same sport do look for completely different attributes. Um, So they're all gonna give me the same list of items, um, but that order is going to be very, very different. So, you know, no coach is going to turn around and say that strength isn't important. But Coach A may say that strength is the most important thing. So let's talk boxing. Punch strength is the most important thing. How hard they can punch is the number one thing I look for. Whereas Coach B might say, you know, yeah, punch strength is important. You need to be able to, you know, land a punch and hopefully push your opponent back a bit with it. But I would say that's probably the least important out of my list of 20 things that I'm looking for. Um, And that was just, again, so variable, even within the same sport, I expected to see differences between the sports, you know, boxing requires a very different skill set to judo. Um, But yet this idea that out of the 12 coaches, 12 boxing coaches that I interviewed or eight boxing coaches that I interviewed, I got eight different lists of eight different orders of attributes. It just, it just blew my mind. Yeah, I couldn't that, understand how international level coaches have such different opinions.
0: Yeah, it is. That is fascinating to me as well. When everybody's competing at the same level, coaches are so responsible for that environment and environments more than just the positive environment, the great work experience or, or the accountability <laughs> or the expectation. It's also what exactly is it that we value and what are we going to work on to get better? That's a big, big part of it. The coach really determines the entire environment that, that athletes will be going into. And the fact that there's such discrepancy, even at the highest level from coach to coach, that is just, it's almost uncanny, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's, it definitely raises a lot of interesting questions around, and I don't use this word lightly, but bias in coaches. Um, a lot of people tend to associate bias with being a bad thing. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, So when I dug down into my findings a little deeper, you know, continued talking to coaches, did some other research, I found that the differentiating factor between coaches and what they thought was important came down more to the coach's ability rather than the athlete's ability, um, which, I think it's kind of funny when we talk about that idea of coachability and we tend to think that's an athletic trait, but if it's coach ability, it comes down to that coach. Um, So, you know, the coach that said that strength was the most important thing was the same coach that told me later in the interview that he doesn't have access to a strength and conditioning coach. Um, So all of his athletes have to be as strong as they're going to get by the time he gets them. Um, so that's why strength is so important to him. Um, another coach who thought that mental toughness or resilience, whatever you want to call that, was the most important factor, he also believed that mental toughness or resilience is an inherent trait that can't be developed. So he felt that if an athlete didn't already have mental toughness, he couldn't help them develop. Um, they needed to already have that when they entered his training program. Whereas, again, Coach C, thought that mental toughness was something that could be developed. So, yes, it was high on his list, but it wasn't the most important thing because, yeah, I can work with that. I can fix that. Um, And, you know, same thing across the board. Technique, tactics, um, you know, different fighting styles, even different physical attributes in the athletes. Some coaches work better with long-limbed athletes because they know – how to work with that style of fighting. That's what they were as an athlete, or that's most of the athletes they've coached have had really long limbs. Whereas other coaches can only work with sort of, not only, but prefer to work with, you know, shorter, stockier athletes, because again, that's the fighting style that they know and they're familiar with and know how to help. Um, So yeah, I found that a lot of what was guiding the coaches' ideas of what was important was highly related to what they felt they as a coach were able to develop or enhance within these athletes. They weren't going to pick athletes that they couldn't help, that they couldn't coach.
0: That is fascinating. It's not something you would ever think about, you know, unless maybe you're in the elite world of sport performance, but it's called coaching bias. And again, as you mentioned, that's not a negative thing. That's just a coach's preference one way or another on maybe the athlete's attributes or what he feels is valuable to him or her or what they coach particularly might feel they can help the athlete in the best way, the, the best way they can help the athlete, I should say. So that's a fascinating thing, Alex. I wonder, I wonder if, if that's the case in the elite coaches that you uh, interviewed. I wonder what we would find if we were to do that same type of questionnaire um, at the youth and developmental levels. You know, where it's volunteer mom and dads. You know, maybe maybe we have a a, a mom that played. You know. Uh, a, 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 Uh, national team field hockey and she had real rough and gruff coaches and maybe that's her coaching style and coaches kids that can't deal with that maybe aren't they aren't the athletes she would pick for her team do you think that's a reasonable expectation maybe it's a reason for us just to be really really aware of our selection process maybe we should be um you know, we test and prod our athletes for selection so much, maybe we need to make sure we have the right coach working with the right athletes. All these things come to mind. When you say this whole, I mentioned this whole concept of coaching bias, fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, so I guess one of the things that again, came out of my research was that when we talk about that, I guess, coaching bias, the way coaches make these decisions is that it's the result of their own experience. So the coach's experience as both an athlete and a coach Um, as well as the time spent with the athletes. So as they get to know athletes better, they tend to make different selections than they do on sort of the on the spot decisions, um, as well as the context around the decision. So as far as, you know, like mom's out there coaching her, you know, middle school field hockey team or whatever. Yeah. Her experience as a player is going to have a massive impact on who she picks for the teams Um, like her education as a coach. Maybe she's taken a level one coaching course. Maybe she hasn't. Maybe she's just, um, yeah, they're helping out. All all those things come into that mix in helping a coach, um, yeah, identify talent, select their talent for their team. Um, And I think a really important part of that is that idea of context and time, because we also found that coaches tend to pick athletes, like I said, based on their own ability, but their coaching ability is also related to the time they've got available to train that athlete. If I'm picking an athlete for a middle school hockey team, I've only got them for one season. And whether I get asked to come back and coach next season is very dependent on how those athletes do. So I'm going to pick probably the better athletes that are already pretty much developed so that all I have to do is stand and direct. I don't have to teach them the skills and give them the three or four years that they need to learn those skills. Um, whereas if I'm picking for, say, you know, some sort of development squad, I'm picking this group in order to develop their skills. And my job is not um, dependent on their outcome and competition, my job is dependent on how much they improve over the season, then I'm going to pick a very different group of athletes.
0: Sure. Um,
1: so again, those expectations put on coaches is a really important part of that equation. We can't be expecting coaches to pick for long-term development if that coach's job is riding on them winning the competition that season.
0: Sure. You were part of it. Division one NCAA sport is a classic example of that. That's not a developmental model in there. As much as everybody would like to think it's a place for athletes to go and and learn and develop, it is a let's compete and let's win now type of environment. That would be a good example of that, right?
1: Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think the way the NCAA system does rowing, because again, that was my sport, is a little different again because rowing's such a – Unusual. Let's use unusual sport. A lot of high schools don't do it, right. so they actually have a walk-on system for um, college rowing teams. They take most college teams take about thirty walk-on athletes who have never even seen a boat before each year. In addition to their varsity squad, um, so rowing does have that kind of developmental program. But again, they only have one year to develop those athletes. If you're in a walk-on squad and you're by the end of the year you're not ready to make varsity, then you know, sort of, that's it. Thanks for coming. So they're selecting those athletes with a year to develop, but also only one year. Whereas we, if we look at you know sort of a Division two or Division three team, um, they're a lot more about that sort of long term development. Yes, winning's great, but yet yeah, nowhere near as much as um, D one. So you look at basketball. You know how many one and done athletes are there out there? They come in, they play their one year of college basketball because that's what they need to do to go to the draft, and then off they go. So those coaches are not picking basketball athletes in order to develop them. They're picking them in order to win this season.
0: So many different factors involved in how a coach operates. Some of which we're aware of, like how much time we have with our athletes and what our objectives might be. Are we focused on winning right now or is our goal long-term athlete development and performance? And then there's also those that we're not aware of. These are the coaching biases, how our past experiences might skew how we operate right now as coaches. This stuff is very important to be aware of, and not just for coaches, but also for the athletes who are trying to, say, make a team, and also for the parents who are supporting their athletes as they work their way through the developmental landscape. No matter how you slice it, the influence of a coach is significant, but just how much of a difference can a coach make? Let's have a look. If we look at the influence of coaching, it is significant at every level of sport. And this is the driving force behind our Crush Performance Online Creating Coachable Players course that we're now hosting. My goal for this course is to help good coaches become great and great coaches to become even greater. Just like the incredible coaches I just spent a week with in the Middle East. They're all among the very best when it comes to the technical and tactical aspects of their sports, the player developmental side. But now they're even more powerful as I taught them everything I know about the athlete development side of sport. Listen, I don't care how much time you practice or how many drills you run or how many shots you take or how many games you play. If your players aren't prepared for the sport as athletes, as a coach, you are limited in how much you can help them improve, period. And this is true at every level of sport. This is exactly why I built the Crush Creating Coachable Player course. To help create more coachable players by educating coaches on athlete development for injury prevention and performance. So when the coaches actually have their players, they can coach them to new heights of performance. Every coach is limited in their ability to help their players perform if those players can't do what needs to be done physically, mentally, and emotionally. And these things change at every level of sport. So coaches have to be aware of what their place is in the pathway of long-term athlete development. And there's no level that's more important than the other. This is one of the big mistakes in sport. The focus on the top levels. We need to be focusing on all levels appropriately. But we all look to the top. College and pro sport, which is okay. We always say if you want to learn what to do, look to the pros. You'll get a good idea of what to do, and sometimes of what not to do. Plus, it's important to understand where the athletes and players you're currently working with are going as they move forward to the next level on their way of chasing down the dream of playing top-level sports. And while coaching is critical at every single level of sport, at the highest levels of sport, coaching can make or break a team or organization. It's all about wins and losses at the top. So how much of a difference does a coach actually make? Let's have a look. In a 2019 study coming out of the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, researchers looked at hundreds of seasons of data, wins and losses, scores and various stats, and they concluded that coaches account for 20 to 30% of the variation in team outcomes. Here's what they said. We find that coaches do in fact matter, and suggestions that coaches are interchangeable, which has been the dominant view in the sports analytics community, are just not true. In every sport we studied, we found that coaches impact variables that contribute to a higher winning percentage. And that statement does a great job in summing up the findings of this very important study. Great coaches influence teams and organization outcomes in a positive way. Bad coaches influence the outcomes in a negative way. And it's true for every single sport. These researchers found that Major League Baseball managers affect runs scored, runs allowed, run differential, and victories, but they have a greater impact on runs allowed versus runs scored. In the NFL, coaches affect points allowed and the point margin, but they have a more significant effect on the number of fumbles and penalties a team commits. And as you might expect, coaches matter more in college football than in the pros. They significantly affect points scored, points allowed, point differential, and victories at the college level. And coaches are highly significant in both the NBA and Division I college basketball outcomes, influencing points scored, points allowed, point differential, and victories. And incredibly, it's been calculated that in the NBA, the right coach is worth 14 wins per year over the league average. In the NHL, coaches also matter, although they matter much more for goals allowed than goals scored. The study was conducted with a method called randomization inference for leadership effects, which accounts for player quality and strength of schedule. The researchers stated there was no direct effort to explicitly measure player quality, so player quality is certainly one of the reasons why it might look like a coach is effective, even if they're not. Basically, what this means is when it comes to great players, we don't know for sure how much of that is attributable to great coaching. The researchers said it could be that Michael Jordan was a great player partly because Phil Jackson was great at utilizing him and great at coaching him and great at enabling him to achieve his highest level. It's an interesting look at the power of that. And it makes sense. Going back to Belichick, great players cannot overcome bad coaching. Well, on the other side, how much of an impact does good coaching actually have on the team performance? It looks potentially huge 20 to 30% huge, according to this study from the University of Chicago. And part of that is helping your players to become their very best, which again, takes us back to the comment made by Dr. Roberts, when she mentioned that priorities change depending on the situation you're coaching. Are you a developmental coach or are you a win now coach? It impacts everything you do. But if you listened carefully, she also mentioned one other factor that I believe is as important when it comes to player and team success. The amount of time you've spent with a player or a team of players. As a coach gets more familiar with a player or group of players, how that coach perceives and works with these players changes. Just as the players' trust and perception of a coach changes, for better or for worse. Something that's also very apparent in the literature is the power of consistency. I'm amazed at the rate of coaching changes in sport today. It signifies one of two things to me. First, when you see a team changing coaches all of the time, there's dysfunction. It's either terrible hiring practices, fear of job loss, poor leadership, Finger pointing and scapegoating, higher levels protecting their positions at the expense of lower level, an owner of, well, anyone, a GM over a head coach, a team president over a GM, a head coach over an assistant coach, or the performance team. It's a terrible place for anyone to be involved and certainly a bad place for any team or organization to be. It's virtually impossible to be successful with these types of internal conditions. And then second, I would say a horrible lack of understanding of how organizational performance and athlete and player development really works. And unfortunately, this is happening at all levels of sport all the time. Why do you think the teams with the fewest coaching changes over time are the most successful? And it's not even close. In a great study done looking at the NBA, investigators looked to identify a relationship between head coaching tenor and team success, independent of all other relevant factors. Here's what they found. Since the ABA and NBA merger in 1976, it was found that longer tenored head coaches have won approximately six more regular season games each year than the 41-win league average there they found that two-thirds of this differential, about four wins, is unrelated to coaching performance and instead the result of longer tenured head coaches historically being endowed with superior talent and more stable rosters. But one-third, about two wins, often the difference between getting into the playoffs and exiting in the regular season, is a result of head coaching performance. The evidence is clear, long-tenored head coaches have historically outperformed their shorter-tenored counterparts. The analysis has shown that player performance, team performance, and coaching performance all improve as a coach's tenor grows with a team. The smartest general managers will seek to find the right coaches and let them stay put. History has shown that even the most revered head coaches require a few years to settle in, But once they do, look out. Despite only coaching 22% of all NBA seasons, long tenured head coaches have accounted for 28% of all playoff appearances and 35% of all NBA championships. Numbers that can't be ignored. And findings like this aren't exclusive to the NBA. In another recent study, Kip Wright analyzed all of the coaching changes over the past 20 years across North America's four major professional sports. During that 20 year span, the NBA had the highest coaching turnover rate among the four leagues. The study found that a new head coach is hired every 2.4 seasons on average in the NBA. In the NHL, it's 2.6 seasons. In Major League Baseball, 3.1 seasons. And in the NFL, a new coach is hired every 3.4 seasons. But here's the kicker. If you look at the last 20 seasons, the teams with the fewest coaching changes have had the most success. The San Antonio Spurs have the highest win-loss percentage at 0.686 with one consistent coach. And then you have teams like Miami and the Utah Jazz following right behind. In the NHL, the San Jose Sharks, the Detroit Red Wings, and the Buffalo Sabres have all had about five coaches in the last 20 years. But the San Jose Sharks and Detroit Red Wings have a win percentage that is leaps and bounds above the league average and any other team in the league. In the NFL in the last 20 seasons, you know who the solid teams are. You have the Steelers, the Patriots, and the Baltimore Ravens. Then you've got the Seahawks, the Panthers, the Bengals, and then the Eagles and the Green Bay Packers. The interesting thing is the Cleveland Browns have had 10 coaches over the past 20 seasons and the lowest win-loss percentage at 0.305. And finally, in Major League Baseball, there's a nice grouping of teams with only two or three coaching changes in the last 20 years. But it's the New York Yankees and the Cardinals who rule in win percentages with the fewest number of coaching changes. And then, just as our case for coaching consistency starts to build, in another light we find some very different data coming out of the NFL. In a very cool look at coaching changes, researcher Jason Pauly looked at the NFL from 1979 to 2017, and he found that teams that replaced their head coach improved their record 63% of the time in the first year with their new head coach. They only declined 28% of the time, and their records stay the same 10% of the time. The average team with a new head coach increases their win total by 1.3 wins in that first year. This is what he concluded. While it's true, more often than not, new coaches will lead their teams to better records. The teams hiring new coaches are the teams who are already likely to see the largest increase in wins, meaning they had the longest way to go. This analysis is simply a look at the coach's first year after being hired. Hiring and evaluating a new coach is a process that goes well beyond their first year record. Because historically, the teams with long-standing coaching dominate the NFL. I mean, there's coaching stability in the NFL, and then there's Pittsburgh, which has lapped the field in hiring-to-firing ratio. The Steelers have had three coaches since 1969, a figure no NFL team can touch. Here's the leaders in this category among Super Bowl-winning franchises, not including the Ravens, who entered the league in 1996. Of the Super Bowl winning teams, the Steelers lead the way with only three coaches since the team's inception. The Seahawks have had only seven coaching changes, the Cowboys eight, the Packers and Broncos nine. The bottom line is, the teams with fewer coaching changes win more often. Throughout the entire histories of the 32 active NFL franchises, the average coach has lasted about 3.8 years. But this is not the case for every team. Some keep their coaches for more than a decade as they keep winning trophies, while others have impatient owners and demanding fan bases, leaving no room for error and ultimately poor team performance. The Ravens lead the way. Being around for 23 seasons, they've only had three coaching changes. Their longest standing coach, John Harbaugh, with a record of 104-72. And then there's the Cowboys. In their 59 seasons, they've had eight coaching changes. The longest, Tom Landry. 29 seasons with a record of 250, 162, and 6. Then there's the Vikings. In their 58 seasons, they've had nine coaches. Bud Grant is the longest standing Viking coach with a record of 158, 95, and 5. And then the storied franchise, the Chicago Bears. In their 99 seasons, they've had 16 coaches. George Halas coached 40 years in total, with a record of 318, 148, and 31. And then there's the Patriots, who've been around for 59 seasons. They've had 15 coaches overall. The longest-standing, Bill Belichick, 225 to 79. Regardless of the sport, and regardless of how you break it down, long-standing coaches are a weapon for success in sport. The number of coaching changes we've seen is staggering when you consider the data that's available, but the insanity continues to repeat itself. For me, I look at my time with the Blue Jays. The organization had a number of issues at the time, an unstable ownership, and ultimately even a team sale. It was a revolving door of managers, and with them, a revolving door of coaching staff. Since entering the league in 1977, the Jays have had 15 different managers. In my time, we saw five managerial changes in as many years. I could tell you this, the players never had a chance. Their heads were spinning. They didn't know which direction they were going. Interesting though, the two longest standing managers in Blue Jay history were also the most successful. Cito Gaston managed from 1992 to 1997, winning two World Series and a number of division titles. And then my friend Gibby, John Gibbons, who managed from 2013 to 2018, had an AL East division title and an AL wildcard win in 2016. And then you might look at the Edmonton Oilers in the NHL, a crushed team to watch for a number of years, ever since the new ownership took over, and currently they have two of the best players in the history of hockey. Since the team entered the NHL in 1981, they've had 19 coaches. And guess what? The most successful of their coaches was their longest standing coach, Glenn Sather. So the data is out there, and in this analytical age of sport, I am incredibly surprised that teams haven't realized the importance of consistent, long-term coaching. I mean, it's hard enough to find success in sport without having to deal with the turbulence and changes that come with hiring a new coach. I suppose it must be difficult. So many teams and organizations just can't seem to get it right. It has to be hard, doesn't it? Or, Could it be simple dysfunction? Because it just doesn't seem that hard to me. When it comes to coaching, make a good hire, support that hire, give that hire time, and then let nature take its course like it has throughout the history of sport. There's a lot to be learned when you take a pause and look back to see what has worked, and when you look forward to see what has to be done, and when you take a moment to truly understand where you're at right now. It's all part of the process when you think like an athlete. I'm Jeff Kershaw. The Crush Performance Podcast is recorded right here in the Crush Studios. Our distribution partner is Radio Influence Digital Media. Website and educational material is produced and directed by Debbie Kershaw, Miss Crusher. Theme music, graphics, and video design by Noah Alexen at Nolexen Visual and Sound. And this is season 18 of Crush Performance. To get the Crush archives and to subscribe to the show and to check out our online course, Creating Coachable Players, go to jeffcurshell.com and follow me on social media. Search out Crush Performance. Have a great week, everybody. Talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance.